So today we're finishing our series on the life of Elijah. We're looking at 2 Kings chapters 1 and 2. And the theme I see in these chapters, and I think is very relevant to a lot of things today, is the theme of loyalty. Loyalty to God and loyalty, in a sense, to people who help us to find God and know God and grow with God. And loyalty is a big issue, isn't it? There's a lot of discussion these days about uh, loyalty to uh, your country, uh, loyalty to friends and companies and movements and, and ideals. Uh, certainly loyalty to one's family is very important. And this weekend has been a time of expression, expressing a love, a loyalty out of love, of, of gathering together, of being uh, here as we were yesterday, my sister and her husband, uh, my niece and nephew, my niece and her husband and their daughter and my uh, uh, sister's granddaughter and my dad and Penny and I and all being here. It's it's an expression of loyalty. It's not a formal loyalty. It's a loyalty born out of love. And I think that's the, that's the most significant kind of loyalty. And what we see Israel has been wrestling with, and Elijah has been trying to help Israel wrestle with over the uh, last few weeks we've been looking at the life of Elijah, is will Israel be loyal to their God? Their God, Yahweh, is loyal to them. Will they in love? be loyal to him he in love is loyal to them even though he disciplines them from time to time of course he does that to help them to understand his love will they be loyal and elijah is wrestling with this with the people of israel indeed he himself in some ways wrestles with it as we saw in the way that he uh, struggled after jezebel threatened to take his life so he's been learning about his own journey of learning how to be fully loyal to god as he's been trying to help um, israel Loyalty is a big deal. Uh, my Penny's uh, brother and stepbrother, uh, Bill and uh, Andrew, are a very loyal Man City supporters. They have season tickets. They've been going to CCT play for decades. And they traveled to the Champions League final yesterday, all the way down to Portugal to the game. They had tickets. I don't know what it cost. They were there. It's on Facebook. Yeah, I checked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's video and everything. Um, they were there. And imagine what that cost. Uh, the, the flight, which I saw photographs of, which was packed. And there's even a little bit of danger there, potentially being packed in tight together. Um, but the cost of the flight, the cost of the tickets, which must have been through the roof, the cost of accommodation, the cost of um, certain certain um, certain uh, tests they would have had to have taken, uh, the cost of, I would suggest, probably the cost of um, a certain liquids and they might have imbibed in significant quantities I would imagine and all those other associated costs it must have cost an absolute fortune and of course today I'm sure they are very disappointed and uh, Asagi is very happy amongst other Chelsea fans I believe um, but um, I, I don't know at the moment what, how they feel about that cost of their loyalty to Man City but I'm sure they do it again they do it next year. They do it a year again. They, they, they would continue to do it because they have loving, a loving and inbuilt motivation of loyalty towards their football team. And this is what we're dealing with here in, in Elijah's life and the life of Israel. Now, what we're not looking at today is chapter 22 of 1 Kings. Uh, we're skipping that because Elijah isn't mentioned there. But just so you know, in chapter 22, at the end of 1 Kings, uh, Ahab died in battle he goes to battle and dies 
and it does in fact happen as God, as Elijah predicted, uh, that the dogs lick up his blood. And then after Ahab dies, his son Ahaziah succeeds him and sadly is just as evil as his father. And that's this is where we now pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 1. So who do we have here? Ahaziah. A bit of background. He reigned for about two years, the son of Ahab. When he died, as it says at the end of the chapter, uh, he didn't have any children. So his brother, uh, Joram, succeeded him as a king. So he reigned for a couple of years and he didn't do much good, it appears. And we, we see in this situation that he has a double crisis. He has the crisis of the rebellion of Moab, which was very significant. And then he has the crisis of a personal injury, falling through the lattice, um, like, a, like falling down the stairs, effectively, or something like that. Uh, from an upper room he's obviously badly injured and thinks he may die you know it it gives me pause to think how crisis and a lot of us uh, have i think over perhaps recent times or over the last year faced more than one crisis at a time uh, covid itself is enough of a crisis and then you add to that say job challenges or health issues or family problems and uh, it can very quickly can be um, uh, the, the feeling is that we're overwhelmed and life is challenging at best times isn't it sometimes but now and again we get that extra level and it seems that for whatever reason Ahaziah's um, uh, decision here when he faces not one but two crises uh, together in his life instead of going to Yahweh who he knew to be powerful he knew that when the kings had obeyed the prophets of Israel they had won victories but instead of going to that king uh, he goes to this other king, or well, this other, uh, sorry, this god. He goes to this other god, so called god Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, the, the lord of the flies, actually, is one translation here. And so perhaps it's something that makes us pause and think about where we go in times of trouble. Where do we go first? There are lots of possible resources when we have problems. Certainly, uh, when we have a medical problem, it's a wise thing to go to our doctor. I'd, amen, that, amen that. But is where are we going for the deeper things uh, that we have problems with? And what what Ahaziah does here, it's a bit like um, uh, it's a bit like it's a bit like a child, you know. <clears throat> excuse me, you know, most of us here are or have been parents of some kind. And um, when you have you have a child and they're young, and uh, when they're ill, what's the first thing they do? They would normally go to their mum or their dad, say uh, they don't feel well. Imagine that small child uh, picking up a soft, cuddly toy and saying to it, hey, why am I ill? What should I do to get better? I don't feel well. What shall I do? And it's rather like that. And it's, it's almost comical, but he's, he's going to a God who is no God to give him an answer he can't get. Uh, it, it's the wrong question to the wrong source. Uh, the question is wrong, too, because, you know, shall I, will I get better is actually not the right question. Really, the question should be, is there a message in this from God? Is there something in this from you, God, that I need to pay attention to? So uh, he's asking the wrong question of the wrong person, you could say. And God gets involved and he sends the angel to Elijah. We know that uh, uh, angels and Elijah have a good history of conversation. And there's an angelic interruption and he communicates truth to Elijah. And there's an interruption with the messengers. Instead of getting to as far as Ekron, uh, apart as the God of Ekron, they instead meet Elijah and he gives them the message. This is what you ought to say. Um, why are you asking Baal Zibab instead of Yahweh? Um, anyway, you're going to die. That's the end of the story. They take the message back. And of course, it's not a very popular message. And the king asks, who is, was it? And they say, a man who had a garment of hair, probably 
that translation may be uh, a hairy man, an exceptionally hairy person. Oh, it's Elijah, right. And then what does the king do? The king does an interesting thing. Um, rather than requesting Elijah, he sends a captain. He sends a military man with a, an army of 50, I mean, a, a company of 50, which is a lot of men, to go and make him come down. And this is the tone we have here <clears throat> from the captain. He goes and he says, man of God, the king says, come down. It's a command. Basically, he's really arresting Elijah and going to make him come to the king is the flavor of it here. And the uh, fire comes down and consumes them, consumes the second captain. And we see the heartless nature of the king. We see the heartless nature of the king here in sending a third captain because any any king worth his salt, if he cares about his captains and cares about his men. He's lost 102 men already, 50 men and two captains, uh, twice, uh, captain twice over. He's not going to send another lot with the same message, is he? Well, he is. Only this king understands what's going on a little better. And he makes a different request. The second king's even ruder than, uh, a captain is even ruder than the first one when he says, come down at once. Uh, but the third king goes up and falls on his knees. And this is an appropriate response because this king is understanding that Elijah is actually the one to be listening to, not the king. The king thinks he's in charge of the prophet. But the prophet knows, and God knows, Yahweh knows, that actually he's supposed to be in charge of the country, of, of Israel, of his people, of his children, in, indeed. And the king is trying to replace God here. And the army men, I mean, we may feel obviously some sympathy for them. Of course we do, the ones that are burned up by fire. On the, but the other thing is, the, the army was a spiritual army in Israel's time. And so the army were only meant to go out to battle uh, with the approval of the prophet, with the approval of, of God's uh, leaders. And when they did what God said, then they won every victory. But when they went against God, then they suffered defeat. Any captain worth his salt should have interpreted these commands of the king and done what the third king did. So uh, there is some responsibility there for the first two captains, we could say. The third one though, does go up on his knees and says, look, this isn't really fair. Uh, please help me out and uh, have respect for my life. Uh, it's a lovely phrase, a, a properly caring uh, leader here. The angel says, okay, go down with him. And they go along and he gives the same message to the king. It doesn't make any difference to the content of the message. Basically, God is in charge, not the king. And off he goes and confronts the king and the king dies, sadly. And the king here, we notice, did not learn from his father, even though Ahab was so wicked, at least at one point when Elijah confronted him, he did humble himself. And it says, you may remember, he went around meekly. Ahaziah, his son, did not do that, and so there was only one, only one possible consequence. There might have been mercy if he had humbled himself, but this, this doesn't happen. So we see here that uh, we've got a confrontation, a bit of an arm wrestle, you might say, between, uh, between the king and the prophet of Yahweh, because there's no real contest. And God wants his people to know that he is God, and if they are with him, they will be safe and they will be taken care of by him if they don't go to him and the, the king should have demonstrated as the king what it means to go to god in a crisis and it's up to us in our times of crisis to make sure that we do go to our heavenly king our spiritual king to jesus as our king for our key resource in times of crisis which we all face and Maybe you're facing it now, and maybe you're feeling like it's beyond you at the moment. I dare say the rebellion of Moab and the fact that Ahaziah had a fatal injury uh, was he felt it was all beyond him. Of course he did. And we all have that 
sense from time to time. But there's always hope, even in the midst of the crisis, even when it's the darkest it can be, even when we cannot see a healthy way out of our situation, there's always hope with God because the spirit of Jesus is with you and me. There's never no hope. Even Elijah was, was there. There were other prophets available to Ahaziah if he had turned to them, and yet he did not. One story uh, recently I'll share with you uh, that's uh, really encouraged me in this sense is the story of, of, uh, of Shane. Uh, now, you may remember last Sunday, I told you that this Sunday we were going to be joined by the uh, Berkshire location of the Tenth Valley Churches of Christ. And as you can see, they're not with us today, and they changed their plans because uh, someone is being recognized as restored to the faith uh, today that's a member of their congregation and is a member of one of the families there. So her name is Shane. Uh, she is the third child of uh, Rudy and Lizelle Havenga. Um, I'm murdering the, the pronunciation of that South African name. I'm sorry for you South Africans. But anyway, the anglicization is Havenga. And you may, some of you may know Rudy and Lizelle. And they have uh, four children, uh, three by previous marriage of Lizelle's and one, the two of them together. And uh, they, the, the eldest, Heinrich, he and his wife, Bianca, are members of the Church of Thames Valley, and they helped lead the, uh, the, um, the, um, the young uh, marriage ministry there. And their second child, Francois, uh, is engaged to Agnes, and they're going to be married in August, and they helped lead the young professionals group. And their third child is Shanae. And Shanae was baptized as a teenager and, uh, then, you know, and was in the church there. And then she traveled um, when she was a little bit older, and she had some very difficult crisis-like experiences abroad when she was traveling abroad. Some of them, um, some of them just life, some of them even actually some difficult church interaction stuff that, that knocked her faith somewhat. And when she got back to the UK, she had a lot of questions, wasn't able to find answers to those questions, decided that she wasn't going to follow God uh, from that point on. And it caused a great deal of heartache, I'd say, to her, but also, of course, to her family and to all in the Thames Valley ministry that knew her. And she spent some time uh, wandering and doing, you know, things her own way. And she, and I'm only sharing with you what's been shared publicly, by the way, nothing, nothing, um, there's no secrets here. Um, and she dated a Muslim guy for a while, which you can imagine having been a Christian for a while, it must've been a little challenging uh, for her family and everything. But after a while she figured this, you know, my life isn't working out and I, maybe I can get answers to my questions. And so she came back and started asking those questions and various people over a number of months helped her to answer those questions, some of them theological, some of them just about life and how things work. And, uh, and she's recaptured her love of God and refound her loyalty to God. And today um, she is being recognized as restored to the faith, uh, which is great, great joy for her, great joy for Rudy, Bazell, for all their family, great joy for that ministry, great joy to God, great joy to the angels. And there's always that story amongst many that we probably know ourselves illustrates there's always some hope. This side of the grave, there's always hope for people. And even for us, any of us that are struggling today with things we feel are overwhelming, we need to remember faithfulness is not a straight line. Faithfulness to God is never a straight line. I just asked the Apostle Peter, <laughs> his, uh, his life was not a straight line of, of faithfulness, was it? So there's always hope if we're alive we've still got breath in the body there's always hope to find a way through the the crises what we need what we need if we're going to we're going to find that ultimate long lasting loyalty to god and that presence of power of god in our lives is we need openness to god 
we need to be unlike Ahaziah. We need to be someone who listens when God sends his messages to us, whether it's God's word directly or whether it's through a friend. As a friend comes and says, how are things? A willingness to be open with one another is a key to retaining our faith and growing in our faith. So I'll leave you with a question before we go on to chapter two, a question to think about, which is, is there anything at the moment that's disturbing your loyalty to God? Why not share it, if there is, with God and with a trusted friend? I'll leave you with that thought while we go on to chapter two about how sometimes loyalty to God involves being really deeply loyal to one another. There's a loyalty between Elijah and Elisha here, which is really interesting. And you could say quite extreme. And what we have is it's time for Elijah to depart. It's time for him to leave this earth. And he leaves this earth in a rather unusual way in a whirlwind. Um, there's no grave to go and visit. Um, uh, I, uh, being down here, because I should be visiting my mother's grave, I haven't had a chance to do so over the weekend yet, but when we leave here today, I will drive up to Pluckley Graveyard and, and pay some pay respects to my mom and, and uh, actually have a conversation with her. I miss, miss not having conversations. It was lovely yesterday to have all the extended family here, but I realized at the end of the day, I, I, I miss my mom, of course, but also I realized I just missed having a conversation with her. And um, I felt quite, quite heavy about that. Um, so I'm going to go up to um, up to the graveside a little bit later and have a conversation. I guess a one-sided one, but at least a conversation with my mom at the graveside. And uh, and I'm looking forward to that. In in really, but um, but I, you know, there's time. There's time. Time to be gone. And and Elisha, it's time for him to go. And what will his legacy be? What will happen now to the people of God? How will they be helped? To remain loyal to Yahweh after he goes on, after he, he moves on. And it's a question for all of us. How do we pass on what God has given us? And also, how do we, if we are an, an, a generation below, those perhaps above us, for want of a better way of putting it, how do we learn what it is that God wants to give us so that we can help others be loyal to God and find God? So we find them on a, um, I suppose you might call this a farewell uh, prophetic preaching tour. Um, it's like some band like the Rolling Stones are being on a final tour, which I think they've had six or seven of those already. Most bands do, but it's a final tour. And the, the route is interesting. We haven't got time to go into the detail now, but basically they're tracing the, the, the way that uh, Israel came into the promised land at the time of, Je of, uh, of, um, of Joshua. They're kind of reversing the course. So they're doing a reverse tour of the places that Israel traveled when they first came into the promised land. And uh, they, so they go from Gilgal down to Bethel, down to Jericho. And each time Elisha, Elijah says to Elisha, you can take off. It's OK. I've got this. And Elisha's like, no, 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 no. I'm sticking around. Says, OK. All right. Then stick around. That's that's good. Kind of reminds me of Ruth and Naomi. You know, Ruth knew that, that God was with Naomi, and so he stuck with her. And of course, so we know how that turned out. And Jesus is in the genealogy of, of uh, Ruth. So reminds a bit of that. And eventually they get to the Jordan. And at the Jordan, we see something rather unusual. We got these 50 prophets on the other side of the Jordan. So they're on the east side. Uh, Elijah and Elisha are on the west side. They're in the promised land. And the other prophets are over there uh, watching uh, effectively standing there at a distance and Elijah takes the cloak and strikes the water 
and the water divides to the right and to the left. It's a little bit different from when uh, Joshua crossed. Uh, the water piled up at a distance that time, but still the same kind of idea. Uh, the same thing that happened with Joshua, who was the protege of Moses, is happening now with Elijah and Elisha. We've got a, it's a deliberate thing, I'm sure, that God is doing here to show that as just as Moses died and passed on the baton to Joshua. And of course, although Moses died on this earth, we it says God buried him. I love that. And we don't actually know where the grave is. So Moses died, passed on to Joshua. Now we got Elijah passing on to uh, Elisha. And Elisha asks for something really interesting. He asks for the double portion. May I have a double portion? It's a very difficult thing you ask, says Elijah. But if you see me when I'm taken, you'll get it. And what does that mean? And okay, so it, that phrase is often used loosely in conversation in Christian circles, and it's, it's fine. It kind of has become something symbolic. But what does it actually mean? I think what it means is because in that culture, in Hebrew culture, you, if you're the first son, you get double the inheritance of all the other sons. And the reason you get the double portion is not because you're the favorite son or you're liked more or some kind of favoritism. The reason you get the double portion is because if you're the eldest son, you are now taking on the responsibilities of the head of the family. You are now the head of the family and you must have the resources to be able to be hospitable and helpful to the needs of the wider family. So you get in the double portion so that you can take care of other people, not so that you can have a bigger house, not so that you can have a nicer donkey or a bigger set of oxen. It, it's You're getting it so that you can serve the rest of your family. And so what Elisha is asking for here is not to say, I want your power. That's not it at all. What he's saying is, can I be the one that will carry on your work? Could I please carry on what you've done, what you've started, what you've achieved? Can I stand for what you stand for? Can I be the one? It looks like Elisha knows that that's probably in Elijah's mind and in the spirit's mind. But he says, okay, I'm willing. I'm willing to be the guy that carries on your work. I'm willing to be effectively. He's saying, I'm willing to be the leader of the prophets. I'm willing to be the one that has to stand up to, uh, well, not Ahaziah anymore, who we've got now. We've got Jor Jor Joram. You've got that next king. I'm willing to be the one to stand up. I'm going to be the one to say, please, Israel, be loyal to Yahweh. He loves you. I'm going to fight that fight. That's what he's asking for. And so he's asking for responsibility. He's asking for a role of service. And I think that's really important in leadership. As all of us have leadership roles and responsibilities pretty much in some way or another. And what we're asking for or what we're looking at when we're perhaps taking on those roles and using our gifts for God's glory, we're asking God to empower us to use those gifts, but we're asking for them to bless other people, not for our own benefit. And that's what this is really all about. You know, when, when Peter said, I want to die with you, Jesus said, well, you know, it's going to be tough. Peter denied it. And then he got restored in, in a sense at the end of John's gospel. And he did die. As he said, he was told to serve feed my sheep. That was the challenge. And it's something, the threefold thing might be going, there might be a parallel here with what happened with Peter and Jesus. And so Elisha is about to step into Elijah's shoes. And it seems to acknowledge that what we're happening here seems to be that Elijah understands it's actually not his, it's not within his ability to give this responsibility to Elisha. He has to be around and let God empower him. So it's not, it's funny, sometimes in trying to raise people up in leadership, we do what we can to 
to train people. But in the end, it's God who empowers people. And it's not about us in the end, really. So they stick together, as he told them they needed to do. And then we have this strange thing of the chariots of fire, the horses and the chariots. And he's not, Elisha, Elijah is depicted sometimes as going up in a chariot. That's not what's happening here. The chariots and the horses of Israel, they're like the military force of God who fights for Israel. And they're separating Elijah and Elisha now. And the chariots and the horsemen come in between them. And then Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind. It's the whirlwind that actually takes him up into the heavenly realms, which is, I just, you know, well, wouldn't that have been something to see? My goodness, no CGI will ever do justice to that. And so that's what's going on here. He's taken and it's time for Elisha to be the, um, the person that God will use for Yahweh's, uh, to bring Yahweh's people together with him the best, uh, best he can. So Elijah has confidence in God. He has a special relationship with God. And Elisha shows great loyalty, great humility, and his own confidence in God. He takes up the cloak that falls from Elijah and he parts the water with it, which shows not that the cloak is a magic cloak. It shows that the mantle of God's approval and power and commissioning of Elijah has passed from Elijah to Elisha. It's been passed on. He is now accredited as God's man in this situation to use his gifts and his responsibilities to serve others. The spirit is being passed on. The spirit is being passed on in the way that the spirit is passed on to us and, and, and from us to other people. And what a privilege it is to be able to help others to learn and grow and to understand God better. Watford, my friends, Watford's getting bigger. I don't mean the city, the town. Uh, I don't mean, I mean us as a congregation. God has blessed us. Over the last 12 months, we've seen 12 adults added to our, our number one way or another. I think it's a wonderful thing. And we're thankful for every single person here on this call and who's with us. And you know, as, as we get bigger, it's also important that we continue to learn and grow how to use our personal individual gifts to bless the whole. As you all know, and we all agree, Church is not a spectator sport. We don't come to be served. We come to serve one another. I just want to challenge each one of us to think about as we go out of lockdown, as we can move into this next phase of our church life as a bigger group, what is it that God might have in mind for you and me to use our gifts to serve other people, both in this congregation and beyond? What might be different for you and I going forward here? How can we pass on what we know? How can we inspire one another to see God in each other and to learn from one another? What's God given you? What's God given you? He's given you something. What has he given you that you can use to bless others? I'm sure there's a lot. So let me wrap up. Elijah. I think one thing I'd like to suggest we all do is just take some time today or over the next few days to reflect back on, on our whole series on Elijah from chapter 17 of First Kings up to today and ask yourself, what, um, what do you most admire about him? When you think about Elijah, what do you most admire? Or perhaps which incident in his life do you most relate to? Something that happened to him that is actually significant, perhaps even to you now. What do you most connect with in him? What's the biggest lesson from all of these, uh, all of this investigation into his life for you and your family? What do you see there? Elijah was extraordinary. Perhaps we don't give him enough credit sometimes. He was responsive to God's messengers when they came to him. The angels were those who guided him. He was courageous, standing up to the king and the queen. He was humble. 
He was empowered by God. He lived up to his calling as uh, Yahweh is my God. He left a legacy with Elisha that he carried on. He was a powerful person of prayer. He was he trusted God. He learned his limits because he did have them and he learned them. And in doing so, he experienced more deeply the kindness and the mercy of God more than ever before. He had a real relationship with God. Well, if, if we learn anything today, I pray and I hope that we will learn to renew our loyalty to God, that we go to him first when we're in a crisis. And then we learn to learn, we learn to learn from each other so that we can pass on what God has given us. I like the verse in, uh, in particular that spoke to me this week, was 2 Kings 1 verse 7, when the king asks the messengers who they met, and they say, they say um, in verse 7, what, uh, the king asks them rather in verse 7, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you of all this? What kind of man? What kind of man was Elijah? He was, he was impressive, but he was just like me and you. James chapter 5, right? A man just like us. He prayed. He's a man just like us. He prayed that it would not rain, and it did not. He prayed that it would rain, and it did. But he was a man just like us. His highs and his lows. He had his moments of calling down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, and he had his moments of running away and hiding. A man just like you and me, with all of his frailties, yet God was with him. It reminds me of what they said about Jesus in Matthew 8. The men were amazed when they saw him do a miracle in Matthew 8. And they, they asked, what kind of man is this? The apostles had similar questions asked of them in Acts chapter 4. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. They were different. They were not what they expected. And perhaps that's like us too. That because we have the spirit of Christ, people hopefully will ask, what kind of people are this? What kind of people are these that trust, are so loyal to their God? Second Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, still ought you to be. What kind of people should we be in Watford? He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And speed is coming. What have we learned from Elijah that's going to help us to live holy and godly lives? We are extraordinary and we are very ordinary. And just like Elijah and you and me, we're extraordinary because we're spirit empowered. We're ordinary because we are still of the flesh. As we take bread and wine, we're reminded that we are people of the flesh. Jesus gave his flesh, gave his body, so that we could become extraordinary in a spirit-empowered way. But without his sacrifice on the cross, we'd have no hope. We'd be stuck in our crises. We'd have no hope of, of something more glorious. But because we have the spirit of Christ, we're able to look forward with hope to, as we go through our times of crisis, to remain loyal to God and to continue to grow. And this bread and wine, that we drink and eat right now, this is what can strengthen us. And it strengthens us because it reminds us of who Jesus is, of his, un, uh, uh, his undying loyalty. He died to demonstrate his loyalty, but he has an therefore an undying loyalty to you and me, which, which he will never lose because of his love for us. 
And it's that love for us that we reciprocate as we then love him with all of the loyalty that we can manage because of his love for us. So let's pray together as we take the bread and the wine. And Taiwo is going to lead us in that prayer. So.